Hey guys, welcome back to another Traders of Money episode. Once again, we have an outstanding guest for you guys, the renowned Louise Bedford, five-time best-selling author. She is an absolute phenomenon when it comes down to trading and trading psychology. So join me as we question her on some of the big topics and really dive into what makes traders tick. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Louise Bedford. Louise, you are the founder of thetradingdame.com. You host of the podcast Talking Trading. You're the best-selling author of five stock market books. The list goes on and on and on. You're an expert in behavioral finance. You've got psychology degrees and business degrees. Where does this all spur? What motivated you to pursue this career in, in investing? Look, I've always loved money. When I was a kid, I just used to adore money. I'd hoard it and I'd count it. And it was always a feature of my childhood to not have enough money. So I think that's sometimes where when we have a need, we aim to keep fulfilling it for our entire life. So for me, that gap where I didn't feel like we had enough money growing up, we certainly didn't have enough food in the household. We never had clothes that were from shops. Mum made all of our clothes, including my bras and knickers. I mean, my goodness. So just to go right deep and <laughs> yeah, no, straight through the gate, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're kicking on with the, the big guns here. But look, I think what happens is after you have something like that where it is something that is clear that other people have and you do not. It inspires you. It adds a level of passion behind every action. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's something chasing the buck isn't a bad thing at all. I know a lot of people have hang-ups about it and I'm here to say go for it because money can do a lot of good not only for your own family but for the people around you. So, yeah, yeah Jordan, I think it went way back when. <laughs> yeah, so the hunger came in. So, so how did you get started in the industry? Obviously, you studied at university. Where did the finance world start taking place for you? Look, funnily enough, my sister's boyfriend at that stage, I was about 16 years old. He came up with this sure thing, which is, <laughs> we don't do that these days, do we? But it was a sure thing investment. I put what little money I had into it and it multiplied by five. So I was hooked from about the age of 16. He invested in his name because I was under 18. And it took mm -hmm. me until I was about 2021 20, before I put on my first official trade. So I say I started trading in 1990 because, you know, when you're 16, that doesn't yeah, count. Legally, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I worked for a credit information company. So I was around money all the time talking about credit. I know it's slightly different from the stock market. It, but it gave me access to company data and I would look up these companies and find out what their credit risk was and then I'd invest in them and eventually I dropped fundamentals altogether. I had a statistician working for me and she developed an interest in the stock market too and I had a background in stats so we grilled 
absolutely every number that we could think of to try and work out can we get a fix on what is going to go up and what's going to go down. We spent six months really hard labour crunching numbers because we had access, you see, which was wonderful, Mm. and we couldn't get it to work. So after we couldn't get it to work, I turned to technical analysis, looking at price and volume action to help determine who is putting their money where their mouth is and can I read that and profit from it. Fantastic. I mean, statistical background, psychology degree, <laughs> everything's yeah. just working perfectly here, investing since you were 18. Um, so no, really, really good. Diving into actually investing and trading, and obviously you've been involved for a long time. Can you run us through a, a specific trade or investment decision, which has been particularly challenging for you? I can imagine you've probably had a fair few over the years. Um, is there one that really sticks out? Oh, there's so many that do stand out. Probably the one which could have potentially blown me up but didn't, maybe that one. I wrote about this in The Secret of Writing Options, one of my books, actually my first book ever. It was with News Corp. So I was writing options and for those of you that aren't familiar with options, basically there is the possibility of contingent liability, which means you can lose much more than you put into a trade. And when you're writing options, they pay you for putting on the trade, believe it or not. I mean, it it just sounded like a dream come true, didn't it? So I'm about my third month into understanding options and writing options. I wrote a bucket load of puts under News Corp. A heap. And I thought, wow, you know, I've just made so much money. Aren't I just the queen of the markets? Just on that high, I went shopping down this very well known <laughs> shopping area with all of the designer stores, and I was spending mm-hmm. money and just feeling like that chicken pretty woman, you know, when she goes and buys all of those amazing things. <laughs> and then as I was handing over the credit card for one of my purchases, one of those little bad little devils on my shoulder compared to the little angel that was saying bye, 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 the little devil said, what happens if the market crashes? (laughs) Oh, no. I went, oh, no. I hadn't considered risk. I know that sounds ridiculous because at that time I was a full-time trader and I was more or less forced into a full-time trading role because I had Mm -hmm. to leave my current corporate position at that stage so it wasn't planned but all of a sudden I worked out what I would be up to my neck with if this trade had gone wrong it was eight hundred thousand dollars of money that I did not have (laughs) so from that moment on I have honored risk I have measured risk I have carefully (laughs) added up every possibility of if it goes really well, what happens? If it goes really badly, what happens? And how can I mitigate the damage, not only to myself and my actual bank account and my family, but also Mm -hmm. to my ability to stay buoyant and resilient? Because often when we're faced with a rotten loss like that, or hopefully not that, for goodness sake, it can even be a small loss, can't it? When we've got a loss on the horizon, it can damage us to the point where we don't want to play anymore. And I couldn't have that because at that stage, I couldn't work out what else I could do. I was definitely trading where my life depended on it. And Mm. it was something that I wouldn't recommend anybody does where they are not familiar with risk before they put on a trade. Evaluate your risk prior to 
getting into that position for goodness sake that's uh yeah. that's my thoughts there yes <laughs> I've, I've got to ask because it's gonna kill me if i don't did you buy the dresses <laughs> you know what i handed over the card and it was in the handing over i'd already got a little package you see i'd handed it over and i actually withdrew the card and i said just wow. a moment and went out the shop and went <gasps> and nearly hyperventilated so look I do think some of these things psychologists we call it one trial learning so Mm. what it can be and hopefully this hasn't happened to the people listening to these podcasts but it can be something that is an action so devastating so significant so neurologically altering that you will never repeat that action again Now, ideally, we learn from OPE, other people's experiences. So really, wouldn't that be great? Because that's the cheapest way to learn. But sometimes we do have to keep on kicking that same piece of furniture again and again before we realise, hey, I should move that table. So hopefully in the markets, that doesn't cost you a fortune. And if it has cost you a fortune and you're still listening to this podcast, kudos to you because you're about to work out how this works. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've definitely had one of those experiencing myself uh, a few years back. So it's it's not a nice one, and it is. I mean, when you come out of the other end, whether it loses, whether it doesn't, you come out the other end, and you're like, why, why, I'm never touching that again. <laughs> like, and I'm what's never... interesting is that your body does react as if you were under threat. Now oh, we know yeah. that in primitive times, that fight, flight, or freeze processing that occurs almost instantly is from the limbic system in your brain that very deep central aspect of your brain and then your new brain wraps around that limbic system and your new brain is actually verbal whereas your limbic system is pre-verbal it can't even say what it's thinking because Mm. that is required for automatic reactions and we're trying to trade with our new brain and our older brain in complete sync. Now, no wonder we're having trouble. We've got a massive difference between that automatic reaction, that knee-jerk, I need this or I need to get out of this feeling, and that new brain that is saying, hold loyal to your trading plan. Take a deep breath. Look at your recovery. Make sure you're hydrated. Make sure you've got enough sleep. All of those things are new brain-oriented. When we're in the heat of the moment, we don't care about that yeah yeah it's it's an experience to go through that's for sure uh and it's it's interesting to hear the science behind it because i can i can walk myself through the feelings that i felt and and from anguish to everything you kind of go through during that time um it is interesting let's let's digress a little bit here i've noticed well it's it's no secret out there the finance industry for years and years has been dominated by a male presence right it's it's very heavy on that side i have noticed uh, especially in our audience that females are becoming more prominent and uh it's great to see and i have noticed a lot of the traders at the firm actually doing well are females is it true that female traders make more money in trading? <laughs> now, isn't that interesting? Because both of us before the, the call in the green room, if you like, we were talking about how there are fewer females in the markets than there are males. That's just a fact. Now, I do have some interesting stats here. So I think these will be quite interesting to relate. Only mm. 26% of American women 
get involved in investing in the stock market and they tend to invest less aggressively than men. However, many studies support that women actually do outperform their male counterparts. Now, let's have a look at some of those studies because some of them are quite new. Only 9% of women, though, think that they're better investors than men. Okay, so let's have a look at the Ah, data with this because we have got a big gap between reality and what is happening in females' mindsets. And that is something that I think is really important to bridge. Now, I'm going to take you through a couple of studies. One March 2019, so quite new, spanned Mm. 11 countries. This is Jodie Gunsberg from SP Global. Now, fewer women feel that they are in excellent or good financial shape in the markets compared to their male counterparts. Now, let's have a think about what that means. If women suffer a financial setback like unemployment, these females that they interviewed are more likely to feel like they will have trouble getting another job. They will feel more likely to have catastrophizing thoughts where things go down the tube quickly with their mindset. And 22% of American women say that they would be immediately unable to afford their current lifestyle in that situation. Now, we are, as females, very prefrontal cortex dominated. That stops us sleeping with that handsome stranger. It helps us maintain a happy household because we're balancing so many things. But in actual fact, that is what's holding us back from taking these types of risks. We consider a risky decision, a risky behaviour to have an impact on our family. I'll just have a look at one or two more pieces of data. Mm -hmm. Fidelity client data, which Fidelity is wonderful with the research they do, they say on average women performed 40 basis points or 0.4% better than men. Now, it's not much, but it gives them a little edge. In the Barbara and Odeen study, of course, women outperformed men and that was way back when. But also in 2017, hedge funds owned by females returned significantly more than their male counterparts, 3.65%, and the men returned 2.23% over the same period. And in 2022, with the market drawdown with COVID or the plague, as I like to refer it to, the females took fewer risks but ended up competing at the same level for returns as their male counterparts. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. If you're a female listening, take heed of this data. Yes, in times of stress, you're likely to find that you are more conservative, but that doesn't mean that you're going to make less money. That lack of aggression is sometimes what's required for longevity in the markets, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. And and things I can take away from that is that aspect of myself when sometimes I find myself being a little bit too aggressive or a little bit too hands-on, is it's still possible to outperform not only your own returns, but everyone else when being a little bit more conservative, being a bit more relaxed and, and sitting back. And it's it's interesting to see the stats in there with the outperformance and then the element of risk on, on how much everyone's willing to go. It's it's incredible stats. It really yeah, is. and I think that's, that's um, the thing too. We need to look at the stats because I think when we are just going on our own emotions or on our own feelings, that can be a big risk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Moving into that of whether we think we should be aggressive, whether we should be conservative, it can all relate. And we have 
ideologies which we believe are incorrect when it comes down to investing and trading? And how can these actively damage us as traders? Nah. Gosh, yes. There are so many things where we can just be running with scissors in the markets. Uh, I'll take you through a few different aspects because I think let's have a look at some specifics here. When we're looking at any skill, and this is a high-performance endeavour, there is no doubt, there are people who have conscious competence. So that's where you're learning. You're trying to make sure that every plate is spinning and it can be a bit exhausting. It can take its toll emotionally because you're aiming to make sure you've covered every single thing, which is why we need a trading plan and why we need a checklist, especially when we're starting out in the markets. Then it moves on over time and with practice and with deep work, dedicated thinking, it moves on to unconscious competence. Now, it's interesting here, if you actually ask a skilled trader to break down exactly what they do, that can damage their results. Interesting, isn't it? It's because Mm. they de-chunk that unconscious competence. All of a sudden, instead of just this leads on to that, leads on to this, they are having to define each specific action and it's the way to ruin a person's golf swing. You say, oh, look, let's take Tiger Woods. He's got a gorgeous golf swing. You get a coach in there to say, why don't you just move your hand a little bit? Why don't you just look over there instead of moving your head like this? And then he's fouled up right? Because he's Mm. got that unconscious competence. Then there's two other areas. There's conscious incompetence, which I love. It's the areas where we know we need to be working on something and we know that we aren't experts. We know we're incompetent. We know we're ignorant in that respect. But the Mm. big one is unconscious incompetence. My friend Bill Moore, who's been on my podcast Talking Trading, he and I talk about this at length. It is called (laughs) negative IQ in his world. It is where you think you know what you're doing, but you have no idea what you're doing. That is where the running with scissors can really take over. Have you seen this, Jordan? I've felt it in areas outside of trading. Um, it's definitely, and, and golf's a prime example. <laughs> Some days you walk up, you'd be like, no, I fixed my swing and you swing and then you're just like, mm, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. Right. So it, it's definitely very prominent, uh, in areas I've, I've not felt it myself. Uh, maybe that's an essence or a sign of unconscious incompetence in there, but what are some of the areas we can look for in trading to try and discover unconscious incompetence? The big one I see this again and again, is support and resistance lines. For technical traders, they think they know where to draw the line, but oh my gosh, when you actually get hundreds of people giving me support resistance lines on their charts, I sit there and go, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Because that is exactly not where to put them. You know, what are are you thinking? So I do think support resistance lines is a really good place to start working, but also not understanding the importance of trading psychology because we know the people who can regulate their emotions and who can stay around long enough are the ones who are more likely to be profitable. I don't know about you. When I started trading, I thought, oh, gosh, who cares about the mindset? Isn't it all to do with your system? So that is an area of unconscious incompetence. And I wonder also whether, and this is something where I'd I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, 
I've been interviewing a lot of people lately and mm. some of the market wizards as well. And I was talking with Linda Rashke and Tom Barso mm-hmm. recently and we were talking about how interesting it is how in the beginning people don't realise they need a trading plan. So, so simple. Okay, it's such a simple way to go, gut feel. But then they get a trading plan and they complicate the heck out of it. All of a sudden, you've got moving averages on top of indicator, on top of indicator, and derivatives of indicators, and they are so far away from the price action. And then if they can hang around long enough, they know they need to simplify that down because it does Mm -hmm. not give you an edge by having those derivatives of derivatives in terms of the way you're looking at price and volume action. It does not give you an edge. So I think just in relation to your clever question, a major area of unconscious in co- of unconscious competence is that negative IQ where people don't realise they have to subtract, take things right. out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. I've, I've spoken to many people about this also and I, I call it uh, down the line of strategy jumping. It's where beginners will get in and they'll learn a strategy and they'll be like, this is fantastic, go through a drawdown, throw it in the bin, go elsewhere, learn more, throw it in the bin. And I call it strategy jumping where they just keep building and building and then they'll come back and I'll be like, okay, where's the plan? Where's the journal? And if it's not there yet, most time it's not there yet. It's a bit like, okay, we need to develop this. And then when you ask them, okay, how do you do how do you enter a position? You know, what's, what's your criteria? And they'll drop a long list and I'll be like, how do you have the time to check all of these? I mean, this move's going to be gone by the time you've gone through this checklist. So yeah, definitely simplifying. Um, a, a great mentor once told me, uh, if you can't explain your strategy to a five-year-old, throw it out. Um, that element of just bringing it down to simple mathematics or simple systematic process and then which you are the edge in how you execute and how you enter and exit etc and that's where we will start i have been interested and i've been watching a little bit of uh, your content recently in some of these podcasts you've recently coined a little cognitive bias you're calling the volatility bias can you explain a bit what this is and why it's important yes absolutely well, thank you, Jordan. I do my research. <laughs> <laughs> now, we are aware, of course, from a behavioural finance perspective that we are subject to a multitude of biases in the markets. We think one thing, but we do another. That's really where it comes down to. I've just been curious asking people about volatility. Now, there are some standard ways to measure volatility, so we can technically see whether a chart is volatile or not, and whether the markets in general are volatile or not. But when I ask traders at any stage, do you think the markets are volatile at the moment? What do you think they're going to say, Jordan, yes or no? Nine times out of 10, I'm going to say they're going to say yes. They are going to say yes. They are going to say yes. Now, we are actually in an interesting time because having the ability to measure volatility the way we do, it is incredible. We can see there's a there's a concept called average true range. So average true range measures the volatility of a price point above and below. On average, how much does that move over a particular period? Now, we can make that into a percentage, which is something that I've loved to do, creating an indicator, ATRV, mm-hmm. and that's the average true range volatility, and you can make that into a percent. Now, 
really over 5% on the Australian market could be historically considered volatile. We can prove that by looking at a chart. However, most of the time it's around 2% volatility. That is not volatile, my friends, not volatile at all. So watch your bias here because you are talking yourself into a situation where you are facing a lack of safety in your mind. You think high volatility means higher chances to lose mm. money. So careful of your self-talk, careful of the way you view volatility. It may not be doing you any favours at all. Interesting. Why do you believe that people get the idea that they feel it's volatile? Do you reckon it's it coincides with perhaps their performance in recent time? Like, do you have an idea on why? Because nine times out of 10 people do say, yeah, this has been a crazy week or, you know, today's been really hard to read. Uh, and volatility usually gets the blame. Is it along those lines? Look, I think I like your theory there. That's that's a good one. I do also think it comes down to evolutionary biology. Now, if you think about our ancient ancestors, only the anxious ones will have made it through to create new babies and new families, mm -hmm. which we are the result of. So if you have that idea that Every shadow could potentially be a threat. Every aspect that is a branch moving in the jungle could be a tiger that's coming out to get you. Those mm -hmm. are the ancestors that actually managed to pass down their genes. So we are a direct descendant from a scaredy cat ancestor. We really are. Everybody is. And sure, we use things like mental tricks and the ability to cognitively argue our way through that situation to not only downregulate our emotions but also allow us to take action. Mm. However, in reality, we are all still back there on the savannah in our furry underwear running around with a spear. We really, really are. We have not evolved past that. <laughs> so I think by us looking at the markets as a volatile beast, that mm. gives us some level of that feels familiar and we are scared and it is bigger than us. So it can make us delve into a safer way of behaving as a trader. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it just is. I think careful of your judgments when you're saying, wow, I just shouldn't be so anxious. Why am I so fearful? D dump that as mm. a concept. It just is. Now what are you going to do about it? Yeah, fantastic. We, we're all very aware, at least, at least I'm very aware of the, the statistics that come out behind lottery winners, right? We always hear about lottery winners, they go on to go bankrupt or maintain their money, whatever. But what's really interesting is there's a high probability that the neighbors of lottery winners actually end up going bankrupt. And I'm so intrigued to dive into whether you've seen correlation effects in traders and egos of seeing someone else succeed so well, does it damage the traders themselves and, and how do people battle that? That is just so fascinating, isn't it? I do think we are so subject to comparing ourselves to others and working out whether we come up short or whether we're ahead. And in fact, a trick that you can play on yourself is upward and downward. It's a game that I've made up with my kids, okay? So okay. unfortunately with social media, we are 
very much succumbing to perfect images of perfect poreless faces with perfect hair doing the perfect gym routine. And we compared those people to us when we roll out of bed on a Monday morning, maybe with a hangover. So that comparison, even though it has helped us throughout the ages, now because it's so prevalent and so in our face, it can actually damage us. Now, why do we have that comparison in in the first place? One of the aspects is because we have safety in a group. That is the thing. So if you don't fit in with that group, what is it doing? But let's remember there's some merit in comparison. If you compare yourself to people ahead of you, those people who look perfect at the gym, that can be very motivating. It can bring you up. It can get you to seek out a mentor, find somebody who has been there before and get them to portray how they did that for you. And then we have downward comparison. Downward is... (laughs) It's where you start to feel very superior. I'll give you an example. I've never said this on a podcast before, but Jordan, I'm feeling extremely safe and comfortable with you. You're my tribe. (laughs) So sometimes I say to my husband, you could have married her, right? And it's always a downward comparison. (laughs) So it's when we Uh, want to feel superior and Mm. that can be good too. That can be. It has its its place. So I do think it's important that we look at that neural aspect to our own behaviour as a trader. If you're comparing upward, make sure you're doing it with an action step in mind. Find out from that person how have they achieved what you want to achieve. Ask them specifics about how they handle risk. Do all of the things that your podcast is revealing to people as that upward comparison. Finding a role model is so important. And if you're comparing yourself downward, my little trick is to compare yourself to a previous version of you. So rather than comparing yourself to somebody who is just starting, because that can seem a little trivial and mean because you might be further along, think to yourself, how have I moved ahead? Where was I last year? Where was I the year before? Where was I 10 years prior? Can I see that there's been upward movement from the past version of myself? And I think that can be a very, very helpful exercise. Fantastic. Sticking on this topic, you have some very controversial, let's say, views on um, self-forgiveness. When it comes to traders in, in that matter, how can you explain further on this? Yes. Yes. Now I'm going to get in trouble with all of the psychologists in your audience. Here is the common way of approaching any life misdemeanor whether it was at your hand or from an external influence. You're supposed to forgive yourself and be kind and display self-care and run yourself a bath. Okay. Now, (laughs) I like the thought of that because you are looking after maybe that childlike part of yourself that is reeling in horror about what has just happened. I get it. But if this has been from your hand, in the markets. If you've put on the wrong position size, if you've put on the wrong trade, who hasn't done that? Yikes, Mm. typed in the wrong order. If it's because you got distracted, if it's because you didn't follow your trading plan and your archetype, that perfect trade that we're aspiring to duplicate, if it is from your hand, 
first of all, recognize that it's from your hand in a very firm, internal locus of control way. And then for goodness sake, kick yourself. You did the wrong thing. You can feel awful about that. It is okay to feel horrible absolutely horrible about what you did because we know that if we have a negative response we're more likely to not do that action in the future the difficulty is I see people forgive themselves too quickly they say to themselves oh well that's okay there'll always be another trade there's another trading day tomorrow they run themselves that bath and they don't learn the lesson so I will ask you to first of all analyze is it something within your control that you can actually take responsibility for I think that's a real key step and if it was and you still did the wrong thing then kick yourself first and forgive yourself later your timing is impeccable. Just this morning, I was doing a live stream for our audience and I had a trader, Heather, come through and said it was her worst week as a trader stat ever. Ooh. And um, the next thing, the first thing she said is, I can't wait for the weekend. And I was, I had that aspect. I was like, okay, but we need to analyze why was it your worst week? Was it your worst week because you made bad decisions or was it the worst week just because your strategy failed but you did everything right you know why was it your worst week and she lent uh, and said yeah she just made silly trades it, it was just all over the place I said well it's so good to look to go crack a bottle of whiskey on the weekend and forget about it I said this is actually the best time for you to learn about what you've done wrong get an understanding on why you made those decisions so you can stop yourself in the future so your timing in in analyzing that is just absolutely perfect and <laughs> it was literally saying, earlier Jordan, today is evidence-backed actually mm. so what yeah. they found is that the school system the kids do a test and then they get 80 percent then they move on to the next subject whereas actually if we're really dedicated to learn in the school system you would take that 20 percent that you got wrong and you would mm. work out where you needed to improve and schools that are undertaking that strategy have higher marks increased satisfaction, fewer dropouts because you're working out what are the areas you need to improve on. Trading is just like that. So I'm loving your advice. I think that was brilliant. Well, thank you. I hope it's not too controversial for everyone else, but <laughs> that's, that's personal experience and, that, and that's what I've done that's worked that way. When we are having these horrible weeks, we can go through emotional swings right into hot stakes cold stakes you know we can feel angry uh, we can feel just flat and how or what are the strategies in which we can undertake to kind of navigate through these emotional swings in which we could endure Mm, this is that's a beautiful question because you're right we are very subject to our own emotions now I want to separate out two aspects behind what you've just said mm -hmm. feelings and mood now they mm. are two separate things feelings can be fleeting you could feel five things in the next two seconds because they are neurological waves that hit us whether it be hormonal because of course the sexual state is part of the hot state mm -hmm. it could be a spark that was all of a sudden from your smell has triggered you off into a memory 
So we are very feeling oriented, but mood, mood is something that is a longer term situation and mood is the thing that we've got more of a chance to make permanent. So we can influence our mood. We can look after ourselves with recovery. We can take those macro and micro breaks and that will influence our mood, that our feelings will still probably be there swinging us around. So I think it's important that we don't let them solidify into a mood. So I've got some advice about hot and cold states. This is something I'm really working on to understand more about. If you can make decisions in the similar type of state that you would be in when you're trading, for example. So let's say on a Sunday, I'm in my pyjamas, I'm analysing the markets because that's my big day for looking at the markets. I spend one or two hours just looking to see what went on in the previous week and what my actions will be for the future week. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure that that state more or less replicates how I'm actually going to be as a trader because if my state is completely calm and there are no distractions and I've totally isolated every part of my life that could potentially foul me up then I'm not going to make very good decisions in the markets because it won't replicate across state so make sure your state replicates when you're actually going to be taking the action so you, what you're telling me is you want me to just call you every Sunday morning just screaming down the phone. That's it. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That's what right. I'm like. that, that would work really well for me. I'd, I'd appreciate that as a, as a community service. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've all heard about PTSD, right, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I've seen you have a couple comments talking about post-traumatic stress growth. Can you explain a bit to the audience about what this is and how it can impact us as traders? Absolutely. So this is, it is certainly something that I think people struggle with. We trivialize post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, in the common vernacular. We say, oh gosh, it just gave me PTSD. Now let's just draw a line under that because this is not true PTSD. Mm. True PTSD is a traumatic event and it results in a neurological change. You can actually, if you look at an MRI and you know what you're looking for, you can spot somebody who has PTSD. It actually affects at a brain level cognitive processing, speed of response, emotional from the amygdala state it can also be an automatic cue for things that are not related to be tracked into that part of the brain that is that fight flight freeze so ptsd is a very real condition now what is interesting is in the last few years psychologists have studied post-traumatic growth now this is where we do have that sometimes that one trial learning sometimes that big life event that goes incredibly right or wrong it can create growth and what we do is we look for meaning in that now I'll give you an example there's a bit tricky to talk about actually with post-traumatic growth in this situation because I don't want you thinking I'm blaming the person that this happened to okay Mm -hmm. so I just want to preface it with that one of my children's friends crossed a road got hit by a car now it was nine months in hospital it was a very difficult time Mm -hmm. the psychologist who I knew that was looking after that child 
said, and it sounds harsh, but what actions of yours created that situation? Now, to, to the child? To the child. Now, okay. you wouldn't think that you'd come up with any action, would you? Because this is mm. a victim. But when that kid, when I'm saying kid, it's a 16-year-old kid, okay, just to yeah. put the age on it. Mm-hmm. When that 16-year-old could say, I really should have looked left and right even though I was crossing at the crossing, that sparked a complete change of agency for that person. All of a sudden, they were back in control. They had an action for the future that they could carry forward. They had a meaning that they could apply behind it. They weren't just a victim. They were taking that particular event and working out, what can I do with that? And that gave them that agency that they needed to heal and to somewhat recover emotionally. So I'm going to ask you, listening to this podcast, all of you will have had a trial, some level of trial in your life. We don't get to the ages that we are with a clean slate. Look for the meaning behind that. What is something that you can learn from that? What is something that you can take into the future and the meaning that you can bring on into the future? And this is a big one too for that type of healing. How can you use that adversity to influence others' behavior? Now, that is a huge area. We're talking about a societal call where you can be a mentor in an area that perhaps you'd never considered before. So looking for that meaning, I think, can really help, even if the event has been incredibly traumatic and if it hasn't immediately sprung forward, it was something within your control. It's, it, so you see what I mean? It's controversial as well with this, Jordan, because I've got a PTSD group that I'm helping as traders and I don't ever want them to think that what I'm saying is that you had complete control over your situation mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you didn't. It's how you interpret that. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like it's like afterwards asking the right questions so you can alter your minds to learn and to fix and then, as you mentioned, to grow. Um, it's it's powerful stuff. I mean, it's simple stuff when you when you really sit down and, and listen to it. But it is it is really powerful stuff. It's building those stepping stones to get yourself on the right path towards success. And in talking about success, and I asked Mark this in my last episode as well. We talked about success environments. How crucial do you believe a successful environment is? A success environment around yourself. Uh. It's everything. Everything is systems. Systems. How do you deal with life events when you don't have control over your environment? I think that that this is really the core. Actually, I've just I'm going to look up this quote by Jesse Livermore. Here we go. I've just found Mm -hmm. it. Um, So we know Jesse Livermore, famous trader. In 1940, Jesse said, "Keep stress at bay." act in all ways to keep the mind clear and your judgment correct I did all I could achieve I did all I could do to achieve this in my physical life by going to bed early eating and drinking lightly and taking exercise and demanding silence in the office now I love that Jesse I just think that book is amazing reminiscences of a stock operator if you haven't read that it reads like a novel and it is incredible I've read so many books about Jesse quite Mm. a tragic figure in the end um, the way that his life ended and his wife sounded like a complete nutcase so but other than that I think Jesse did what he could 
to control the things within his environment and as a result his trading was absolutely exceptional it's a shame he just didn't apply that to the rest of his life as well (laughs) sometimes it's the way hey sometimes we can do things very well in the in other areas just lack a little bit but what we've we've covered a whole heap of different topics today all right we've gone all over the place There's a few key takeaways which I've picked up in here. What are some processes we can do to implement what you've given us today? Uh, Yes, I think this is great because we need to be able to convert what we're hearing into practicality. And this is some homework for our listeners, Jordan. I think it's a good thing. I'm going to set some homework like I was a teacher. I want you to have a serious think about how can I build in a pause before making a decision. That pause is giving your new brain a chance to react, not just your old brain. That pause will give you a chance to breathe and to see things clearly. So number one, ask yourself and build into your routine, how can I build in a pause? Number two, Ask yourself, what can I do to calm myself down so that I can feel my emotions stir, but I respond with a blanket of clarity? So that calming, it may be as simple as taking a drink. For goodness sake, let's do that right now. Take (laughs) a drink. Let that (laughs) drink be a cue to take a deep breath so that you can think clearly. Some of these little things we build in can make the biggest difference. I think also ask yourself, what will it take for me to make my key trading decisions when the markets are not open? Now, as I mentioned, Sunday morning is important to me because that's when I look at the market action and I think about what's moving forward for the week for me. If I was making those same decisions while the market was open, I think we'd have a completely different Louise on our hands. And the other aspect, so number four for homework is ask yourself, how can you build in micro and macro breaks to your trading routine? For a while there, I traded multiple years without a break. I remember a friend of mine saying to me, well, when were you last out of the markets? And he was a trader. And I looked at him blankly and I said, what 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 is this thing that you, you're you're talking about? What is this out of the no exposure? Aspect? What do you mean? That's it. So <laughs> I, I, in actual fact, think that that's probably not the best way to go. Mm. Sometimes to be out of the markets completely, to take a breath, work out. For me, I use a macro filter that tells me when I need to stop trading. So that macro filter says no more for you, Louise. The markets are not cooperating with your view. So out, that is a really important step. So Jordan, I love what you're doing here. I love that you're bringing these concepts to the world in such a palatable bite-sized format because this is stuff that I usually only say for members of my mentor program. So <laughs> well done. Yeah, for you're welcome, me. everyone. I managed to get it. We're done, boys. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So Jordan, where can people find out more about you? Because I know my listeners will be interested in following you. Yeah, so right now we're really pushing out the YouTube content. We're live streaming every trading day, talking about everything, trading, podcasts, newsletters. So you can get us at tradedelicious.com or head to YouTube slash tradedelicious and you'll see all of our content there and vice versa. Where can we find more of Louise other than reading the magnificent list of books you have? Where can we access more information from you? 
Well, look, I think a lot of people really do need to consider that they need to work on a written trading plan. And without that written trading plan, you will have trouble regulating your emotions and you won't be able to consider all of the aspects in the clean lack of hot state type of concept that you need to be able to make good decisions. So come to my website, tradinggame.com.au and download my free trading plan template, tradinggame.com.au. Register your details and I'll send it to you straight away along with my free five-part audio e-course, but also come and visit me at my talking trading podcast you're already listening to podcasts i know you've got to be a podcaster so it's a lovely thing (laughs) talkingtrading.com.au and it has been such a pleasure to bring you this joint episode jordan you're a superstar love your work Ah, thank you very much louise it's been a pleasure